Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The Colorado Dream, Newcomers Welcome, is sponsored by Ames Community College. Hi, I'm Stephanie Daniel, host of the Colorado Dream podcast. This season, I've been reporting on Black immigrants and refugees in Aurora, Colorado, where about one in five residents is foreign-born. After the podcast aired, we hosted a live community event and panel discussion to talk about the themes explored in the series. The panel included me and a couple of people you heard in the podcast, including Salwa Mortada Bamba. The conversation took place at the historic Aurora Fox Arts Center and was moderated by Scott Williams, museum director of the Aurora History Museum and Historic Sites. Take a listen. Well, good evening, everyone here in our live audience, as well out uh, online and uh, streaming. Um, thank you for the introduction. Um, and uh, again, thank you for joining us. Um, I would like to give a little bit of a background um, for Stephanie Daniel here um, in season two of the American Dream, Newcomers Welcome. Um, Stephanie Daniel here, our host and creator, explores the black immigrant experience in Aurora uh, as told through the eyes of one African immigrant and Aurora as the city and its residents strive to become an inclusive home for all. So in this series, the topics explored in each podcast range from arrival integration, education, identity, and home. So tonight, we have the special opportunity to hear about experiences and knowledge about these topics from our panelists. So uh, to begin our discussion this evening, um, I'm going to introduce again um, all of our, uh, our, our panelists here. So I'd like to introduce uh, Stephanie Daniel, um, Stephanie is the senior managing editor and award-winning reporter at KUNC, an NPR station uh, covering Northern Colorado. She's also the host of, of course, the Colorado Dream podcast. While at KUNC, she's reported on K through 12 and higher education, the opioid crisis, social just justice issues, 19th century Chinese minors, and much more. In 2021, Stephanie was selected to be a Higher Education Media Fellow by the Institute for Citizens and Scholars. With this fellowship, she created the Colorado Dream podcast. The first season focused on career and technical education at Westminster High School. For this season of the podcast, she's been honored to feature the stories of immigrants and refugees in Aurora as the city, again, strives to become an inclusive home for all. Stephanie grew up in Northeast Denver, about 10 minutes from this theater. I'd like to introduce our next panelist, and that is Salwa Mortada Bamba. She's a family nurse practitioner, assistant professor of clinical uh, practice, at the University of Colorado College of Nursing. Dr. Salwa Rita Mortada Bamba was born in Monrovia, Liberia, West Africa. Although Aurora has been her home for the past 24 years, Salwa is motivated by service to others. 
Dr. Bamba is a board-certified family nurse practitioner um, and all of the things that I said in the beginning, um, where she advocates for minority representation in healthcare academia. She focuses her practice and career on improving healthcare access, equity, equality for disenfranchised populations, specifically on social determinants of health that affect minority, immigrant, and refugee populations in her local community. What Dr. Bamba loves most about Colorado is the 300 days of sunshine, <laughs> the beautiful and the beautiful outdoors. She is a wife and mother to four wonderful children and enjoys spending all her leisure time with them. For her, family is everything. Dr. Bamba imagines that if she were not a primary care provider, she would secretly moonlight as a rock star musician with crazy guitar <laughs> skills and dope dance moves, or as a spoken word poet, hopefully leaving audiences captivated by the brilliance and passion of her rhymes. <laughs> we'll move next now to our next panelist. That's Miriam Dia. Uh, Miriam is a junior in high school at Colorado Early Colleges of Aurora, and is also a devout member of the African Leadership Group's Youth Empowerment Program. She is also a small business owner of a cosmetic business called Miriam's Magnifique Collections, sorry about that, um, which started in May of 2020 at the age of 14. Miriam is also the co-founder of the Afro Student Alliance Club, which started in January of this year at the CECA campus and has completely shifted the campus's culture. She is a member of the National Honor Society and the Phi Theta Kappa Honor Society. Miriam is on track to graduate a semester early with her diploma and her associate's degree and plans to attend an HBCU to obtain her bachelor's degree. Miriam is a, an aspiring lawyer who hopes to help rebuild the justice system so that it works for all. And finally, we get down to, we, we, we have Amanda Blaurock, who is co-founder and executive director of the Village Exchange Center located right here in Aurora. Amanda has expertise in growth, accountability, and turnaround in both the private and public sectors. As a mission-based leader, she is known for innovative risk-taking, creative problem-solving, for complex societal challenges and for fiscal accountability. Amanda has an acute ability to apply legal and management skills to create innovation, public policy and system change and to test innovations to in individual situations for future replication. Through a 20 year journey of representing the United States government, Fortune 100 companies, and family offices and co-founding and scaling an innovative nonprofit, Amanda has developed a unique personal and professional accountability for relationship management, resulting in client and philanthropic investments. For her, during the COVID-19 pandemic, Amanda has been recognized as an everyday hero by the city of Aurora, by the Women's Foundation of, of Colorado as one of the nine Shiro women who inspires today and every day, and by Sarko of Colorado for her dedication and commitment to the El Salvadoran community. 
with that, uh, we will move to one of our first questions, and one of the first questions that I have for Stephanie Daniels here. Stephanie, can you reiterate what led you to explore the black immigrant experience in Aurora through the vehicle of the Colorado Dream podcast? Sure, so um, for the second season, I decided to focus on immigrants. I thought that kind of fit perfectly with this idea of the American Dream. And I had received a press release from the city of Aurora in 2020 just about this immigrant integration plan that they had. And I kind of just filed it away in the back of my mind. Um, so when I decided what my focus was going to be, I thought about Aurora and then I just thought about you know black immigrants and refugees and just knowing that um, they seem to be underrepresented in the media. And also, as Scott mentioned, I mean, I grew up 10 minutes from here. I live 10 minutes from here now. I spend a lot of time um, driving up and down Colfax. I'm in Aurora a lot. And I just um, saw a lot of uh, black immigrants. And I don't know, I just got inspired. And then I met Salwa. And um, I kind of just knew that I was on the right path with that, so. Thank you. What episode or specific aspect of the Newcomers Welcome podcast has created the greatest impact and feedback um, you've received in the local community? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> if, 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 um, if you've even gotten that far yet. I don't know. I would think maybe episode four, which sort of dealt with identity. That was the title of the episode, and it talked about um, the, uh, the relationship between black immigrants and then African Americans and some of the misunderstandings that happen um, and some of the work that's being done to kind of bridge those gaps. So I think that was probably um, the one that I've gotten the most feedback on. Excellent. Uh, for my next... Oh, sure. Um, for my next question, it's going to be for Salwa. Uh, can you talk about some of the most significant events that you experienced before you immigrated to the United States that shaped who you are today? Yes, absolutely. <clears throat> For me, it would be the, the civil war that I went through as a child in Liberia. Um, I was around the age of 12 to 13, 12 through 14, I lived through the Civil War. Um, my family and I were displaced and I lost my sister um, during that time. She was murdered by one of the, the warlords. And then I had to flee for my life because um, the warlords had an affinity for light-skinned young girls, so I had to flee by myself to another country. Um, and as a refugee, I lived by myself um, in the refugee camp in another country. Um, and then thankfully a family um, took me in and I made contact with some relatives during that time in the other country and uh, found safety during that time and, and lived there in boarding school, etc. So. Um, I would say that's the mo most significant event um, in my life before I immigrated to the, to the United States. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you very You're much. Welcome. 
I'm going to go down the line with the questions uh, to Miriam. Um, Miriam, um, to start out with, uh, and in the podcast, I know that um, talking about the Afro Student Alliance, how, how did you come to create the Afro Student Alliance? Um, yes, so me and my friend were sitting in the back of our world history class. Um, and we had looked at the syllabus and we saw that African history would come up um, towards the end of the semester. Um, and as we were going through the semester, we thought maybe other histories of other ethnic groups would be integrated in, and it wasn't. So we found ourselves kind of bored because we were learning about a lot of white European westernized history that you hear repetitively throughout your entire education. Um, and so we just, we found ourselves bored. So in the back of that class, we started planning to start a, a student club that would be focused around Afro history and the teachings of Afro history um, and allowing students to have a place to connect and feel at home um, and feel like there was something that they could relate to. Um, and we knew that if we were feeling that way, if we felt like we couldn't relate to the content being taught in a world history class, then other students are probably feeling the same way in their other classes. Um, so we wanted to create a safe space for them, and that's how we came about starting the African Alliance. Thank you, Miriam. And uh, for my next question, this will be for Amanda. Amanda, um, I'm starting a lot of these questions just uh, as in the podcast reiterating some things but I also wanted to ask you um, how did the Village Exchange Center become a reality? Well it started with the conversation with my stepfather who is the pastor of the St. Matthew Lutheran Church and kind of looking at how he could re-envision the space and potentially shut it down and give the the actual church back to the bishop and and we started talking about just an alternative and what we could do that would be reflective and successful in the location that it's in and knowing that there was a drastic change in the population and demographic around the village exchange center which is a couple blocks from here um, we just knew that opening the space up and bringing community in could be a great opportunity so it became a reality by actually making a presentation to the congregation, figuring out that there was actually a possibility that the congregation owned the land um, and the church outright, and, and the bylaws and the constitution allowed for them to do what they wanted with the space. And we made the proposal, and over several months, the congregation voted on donating the church to a yet-to-be-formed nonprofit to me and my stepfather. And that's kind of the rest was history. It happened really quick. We did a quick claim deed and started a company and very quickly got 501c3 status. Excellent, thank you. I'm going to um, ask another question to Stephanie. Um, and Stephanie, this is a, a two-part question, but um, in this first part, you know, during your reporting to create this podcast, uh, what, what, as you as you were reporting, what were the, the top adversities that face uh, Aurora's black immigrant community? So, 
I think there's a adversities that face all immigrants. Um, but through my reporting, what I learned is that um, that uh, African immigrants are often lumped in with just black people in general, um, and especially um, in the third episode when I talked about education, I interviewed. Dr. Ann Kiki, who is um, the first black immigrant to be elected to the Rural Public Schools Board of Education. And she just mentioned some of the challenges that, um, that African students face and the children of, of African immigrants face that is separate from what African American students and maybe other um, black students could face. And I, and I think too also, um, you know, language is an issue as well. Um, you know, if you think about the, the you know the African diaspora and all of the countries that people are coming from. I mean, gosh, just in Africa, I don't even know how many languages are spoken. But you know, I mean, it's it's different from um, maybe some of the other communities where people are speaking, where people who look similar are speaking the same language. But you've got people speaking all different kinds of languages. So that was um, pretty eye opening to me. And one thing that. Um, that Dr. Kiki said that kind of stuck with me is this idea that they're forgotten, right? Because they're just lumped in with, you know, with this just black demographic and it's just one homogeneous group. And, you know, that's obviously not the case. And just as a kind of a, a follow-up to that in the second part, um, during the reporting, what, what city of Aurora partnering organizations and or individuals did you find to be most effective in helping solve uh, the needs of immigrants and, and potentially the, the, the African immigrants in Aurora? So as I mentioned, um, the whole reason why I chose Aurora was because of this immigrant integration plan. In Aurora, about 20% of residents are foreign-born. So I first started out with talking to Ricardo Gambetta and Min Su Song, who head up the Office of Immigrant and, wait, the Office of International and Immigrant Affairs. And um, so I was reading about their programs and heard about the Natural Helpers Program. And then through that came to Village Exchange Center. And one of the things, and I think there's two programs um, that work with the city, but one is uh, focused more on Spanish speakers. And Village Exchange Center, their Natural Helpers Program um, focuses on more than just uh, Spanish speakers. And what is so interesting is, so I met with Amanda and I met with Jose, and so Dr. Ann Kiki is part of their navigators uh, or their natural helpers program. And then I met, um, I, I was over at the Capitol on International Women's Day to, um, to talk to uh, Representative, Representative Nikita Ricks. And there I met Danielle Combo, who works with Governor Polis. And she also, and then I, <laughs> I was at a Village Exchange Center for their natural helpers graduation. And there was Danielle. And so it's just, it's kind of funny that um, that Village Exchange Center is really, I don't think I knew that when I first heard about the organization, but it really is a hub for the immigrant and refugee community in Aurora. And I think there's some other people that I talked to that were, con that, you know, that had connections to the organization. Um, so that was, um, I wouldn't say it was surprising, but I think, I think that was really um, cool to, for that to happen. And then, you know, when I talked to Amanda, something that I thought was so interesting is, so when they pivoted, they talked to the community and they really worked with the community to find out what they needed, as opposed to maybe some other organizations that 
are a little bit more established and don't have the flexibility and the freedom to pivot. So I think that's probably why um, they've been successful and they've been able to help so many communities. I mean, Amanda, you guys work with over 41 yeah. countries of origin. Yeah. Great. Thank you. Um, I'm going to move next to um, Salwa. And I wanted to in, in follow up to the question that I asked you before. Um, I did want to ask you, um, what was the hardest thing about immigrating to the United States? If there's one thing. <laughs> oh, gosh. Uh, I don't think there was one thing that I can think of that was difficult. There were so many obstacles, so many difficult things. I can't think of one thing that was the most difficult in reading here. Um, I would say the most difficult part of the immigration process for me, I'm not sure if that's the question, mm -hmm. was actually the road to becoming a U.S. citizen. That was the most difficult process for me because it took 24 years for me. I, um, I don't know if you all listen to the podcast, but because of the war, I only had a temporary protected status when I came here. Um, I was only 19. Um, I came with the intention of filing for political asylum, but I didn't know anything about it. Nobody helped me. I didn't know that I even qualified for it. The, the U.S. ambassador told me that I was eligible for it, but I didn't have the resources. I d didn't know who to reach out to. My aunt that I came to in New York City didn't know who to direct me to. We, she didn't know anything, so um, I was stuck. And then when I came to Colorado, I felt I was a year in the U.S., almost two years. I felt it was a little too late, so I was stuck in this endless cycle. Um, so year after year, I would have to renew my work permit, $400, $400, over and over and over, not eligible for anything, no public benefits, nothing. I was stuck in this endless cycle, and it was the most difficult thing ever. Um, I remember... On my identification card, it had not valid for federal ID. And everywhere I went, if I was pulled over by a cop, if I went to the bank, if I went to school, the community college where, where I tried to register, I was treated as if I was either a thief or some, something else, some alien from another planet. And it, just felt, I can't describe the feeling. Like, I wasn't even a human. Like, I didn't deserve to be here. And that was the most, that, that's the worst thing ever to me. Um, so yeah, that, I would say that that's the worst part of the immigration. I, I never expected that because I held America in such high esteem. I still do. It's afforded me so many things. Now that I am a U.S. citizen, thanks to my husband, 
Um, but yeah, that's that's what I remember. And perhaps if if, uh, if you can give us the best thing. Oh. Oh gosh. Integrating. <laughs> so many. Just the dream of coming here. Like I told Stephanie, I would, as a child, um, before the war, we were okay. My, my, we were well-to-do. My father worked really hard. He had a business. We, we did well. We did, we did okay. And the war came and destroyed everything, right? But we still dreamed. We, we, I had a fabulous dream, and I would sit on the beach and had this elaborate dream of coming here and going to med school and just helping people and making a difference in the world. And that dream kept me going. It kept me going in, in the difficult days when I was homeless and sleeping in my car with my two children, it kept me going. Um, that's the beautiful thing about America. Um, I still had that dream that one day I would own a home I still had the dream that I would graduate over and over. I still had the dream that one day someone will call me Dr. Sawa. Mm -hmm. And I have that dream today. The dream that you can accomplish anything when you land on this soil. I told Stephanie, it's kind of like, it's a facade, but also if you work hard, yes, you can achieve it because it's, it's attainable. It's, it's absolutely attainable because in any other country, it, it, you, you are not afforded the possibilities that, are, that exist here. So that's the best thing about America. The dreams and, and the possibilities are endless. There's warmth, there's love. Um, the, the philanthropy, I, I can't explain it, you know. It's, it's unimaginable. It feels like it's unattainable, but it's also attainable. I can't put it into words, unfortunately. Yeah. Thank you, Sala. You're welcome. Next question is for Miriam. Um, Miriam, can you tell us about the African Leadership Group Youth Empowerment Program and why this program was created? Um, yes, so um, the African Leadership Group is a nonprofit organization that my dad started in 2006. And a lot of the African immigrants here obviously have children. And the African Leadership Group wanted to be able to bring these kids together and start them off at a young age um, and building them for, with leadership skills and allowing them to come together because. Growing up as an African child, you're kind of living a double life in a way. Um, at home, you're being raised as an African. Um, your parents will probably speak to you in your na native language. Everything at home is like it would be in Africa. But then when you go to school or when you exit your home, you're immediately considered American. And no one will know you're African unless you say so. So a lot of these kids kind of have an identity crisis at some point. There's some African kids who, to this day, won't say I'm will say I'm not African, but my parents are. It's like, it's a, it's a struggle for them to find a balance between the two. So, they wanted to create a program for these kids to come together, and be able to relate to one another, and be able to share experiences, and to grow as leaders and as young leaders. Um, so it started out to do that, and it's afforded me personally so many different opportunities, such as this one, to be on panels, on different panels, to be 
um, in different internships and fellowships and it's just allowing us to come together and giving us opportunities that we probably wouldn't have elsewhere. Thank you, Miriam. My next question is for Amanda. Uh, Amanda, I know we touched a little bit about the Village Exchange uh, Center, but can you, um, can you provide us with some of the resources and services and other programs that the, the VEC provides for the community? Sure, so we started off about five years ago and we had one program and COVID came and then our entire organization pivoted. Um, so I'm gonna talk now about what we do today. Um, we have multiple programs like the Natural Helpers Program. Um, we also have a Cultural Navigator Program, um, which are leadership programs and a Youth Natural Leader Program. Um, we do food access and food sovereignty through starting at a village farm at Stanley Marketplace where we have 24 50-foot farm beds um, and do a state-certified urban immersion or as you learn program. Um, about 50% of the food that we grow in that program goes to our village pantry at the Village Exchange Center, uh, where we serve about 500 families per week food. Um, everything from the Afghan refugees in partnership with the state and the refugee agencies um, to just anyone that needs food. We really don't have any charge or ask anyone what their background in any way is. Um, and we also do vaccine equity clinics. Um, at our vaccine clinic, we do health fairs with Nine Health. Um, we have multiple funds, so economic empowering funds. We have a minority um, business, small business fund, where we do technical assistance and small grants. Um, we also have a low-wage worker fund. Um, the low-wage worker fund is a $1,500 grant to individuals who get COVID. Um, but are low wage, low income, um, so they don't have PTO. And that program is a part of Arapahoe, Adams, and we're going to be doing um, Boulder County. Um, we also have a vaccine equity fund um, with the uh, Arapahoe County, which is a $100 stipend to anyone that's low income that's an Arapahoe County resident who wants a vaccine, anything from the first to the booster. Um, and some of my team are here, and they're probably thinking of the other programs, but those are the majority of the ones that we do. Great. Thank you, Amanda. I'm sure maybe our audience has questions that, that we'll get to later on as well. Go ahead. One more very mm -hmm. important one. So we're a multi-faith worship space, so that's one of the major kind of components of how we originally started bringing people in. We have four congregations on Sundays, and because our mission is celebrating religious and cultural diversity, all of our programs, our events, are bringing different types of programs that are culturally based together in the space are kind of a way that we um, kind of build community through exchange. Excellent, thank you. I'm gonna come back to Stephanie here um, and ask you a question um, about your reporting in terms of this story um, and also maybe even previous stories that you've done with the, um, with the podcast, the Colorado Dream podcast. Has, has any of your reporting led to legislation creation or started conversations about the 
changing local municipal policies to benefit immigrant communities? None of my reporting has done that, but um, I, I hope that this reporting will spark some conversations um, just around you know the work that's being done in the city and with organizations like Village Exchange Center, also the dynamics between cultural groups and um, you know like the discussions around black immigrants and African Americans and how different groups can come together and work together um, because I, I think that there's a lot of common goals that we have and I, and I think you know um, like what Miriam was saying, with um, you know being African at home and in America, and when you leave the house, and like people don't know, right? Like when you leave, I mean, if we walk down the street, people would have no idea that um, you know that you were born in Senegal. Um, and so I think that you know a lot of times there's a lot of division, but there's also so many commonalities between groups. And one thing that didn't make it into the podcast, I just didn't have time, is I went to a citizenship class at. Um, Community College of Aurora, and it was th um, three students were there, um, two women, one I believe she was from Kenya, and then another woman from Afghanistan, and then a man from Mexico. And the woman who was from Kenya, she had been in a refugee camp and was in the U.S., and she was really upset because um, I believe a, a, her brother had died or a relative had, had died, and she wasn't able to go home because of her status. And so the guy who was from Mexico, he brought her a box of tissues and he was just like, I, I understand, I get it, because he had been in that position. He, he wasn't able to go home and, and he could understand that. And so I think, you know, there's so much division and there's so many things that, that, um, that separate us, but those little moments of humanity where it's, it's like, okay, well, they have the same experience. You know, they're, they're both going through this. And I think, you know, yes, the podcast focused on you know, black immigrants and refugees, but I think a lot of the themes are universal with, with not only immigrants and refugees, but also, you know, Americans too. I mean, the stuff that Salva went through with trying to pay for school and, and you know, being a single parent and, and juggling kids and work and all of these things. I mean, a lot of people go through that, right? So, so that's one of the things that I wanted to get across with the podcast was just sort of these universal themes and, and things that people can really relate to. Great, thank you. Um, Salva, I'm, I'm gonna go to you with a question about, um, can you tell us about your involvement in the New American Leaders Group? Uh, <clears throat> absolutely, yes. So New American Leaders is a nonprofit organization. They focus on training new Americans um, who have become U.S. citizens, um, specifically people who, are, who have immigrated to the United States and have gone through the immigration process and have become citizens, to, who are interested in running for public office someday. Um, you go through classes and you learn about creating a stump speech, for example, public speaking, um, how not to say um so frequently <laughs> like me. <laughs> how not to use your hands too much, things like that. They groom you, um, to, there I go again, to become an effective public speaker. And basically, if you show interest and you have the, the spirit of advocacy, 
and you have an interest in serving and the passion to share your lived experience, make a difference, and not only to share your lived experience, but to ensure that your experiences and things that you have gone through not happen to the people that come after you. Help to ensure that you can make policies and help to employ those policies or pass make policies, I'm repeating myself because I'm nervous now, but basically groom people to run for office to make a difference for tomorrow. So I'm part of that organization and hopefully I'm being groomed properly. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a cult. Yes. <laughs> to one day in the near future run. Sounds good. Thank yeah. you. Uh, my next question is for Miriam, and I wanted to ask you um, in follow-up to what you told us about the African Leadership Group and the uh, Youth Empowerment Program. In, in what ways um, that your family assisted and supported you um, in guiding you in the direction that you're taking right now? Hmm. Um, a lot. <laughs> um, <laughs> I have two amazing parents um, who have both dedicated their lives to serving their communities um, and I get to witness it firsthand. Um, I've been a part of ALG since I was born. I've been volunteering, I've been on panels for their different events, I've been able to be kind of a spokesperson for the Youth Empowerment Program. Um, so I'm, I'm really deep into the community and I get to, um, and I'm being raised in that community. So. I'm constantly around it, and my parents have exposed me to things that a lot of kids my age haven't even gotten get gotten to see yet. Um, and it's really inspired me to want to work for my community and be a voice for my community. Um, and um, they really inspired me to continue on with that work. So. Thank you very much, Amanda. Uh, I also wanted to ask you uh, in follow-up at the uh, the Village Exchange Center, uh, what are some of the success stories or things that are that are um, of the accomplishments that you feel that you can share with our audience this evening? So I, I would say there are two of them. I'm going to start with a quick one and it's kind of what my stepfather and I always say and it's the fact that people walk into the building and they don't know who we are and it feels like home, and it feels like a safe place of belonging that they can just walk into, and it's theirs. It's a community center at its heart, so it's not about us and an organization. There's not that hierarchy. When you're in the building, it's just a space that is for the community. So I think that's one area of success. Um, I think the biggest success in the last five years um, was a decision that we made during COVID um, we decided to become the payment partner for the Left Behind Workers Fund, um, which was a fund that provided a $1,000 um, grant to undocumented immigrants who lost their job due to COVID but could not obtain unemployment insurance. And here we were with 30,000, 30 million people around the United States getting unemployment insurance and a very large population of people who had paid into unemployment insurance but actually could not get anything out. 
and we made the decision during Trump's administration to take the risk of providing grants, $1,000 and up to 7500 in rental assistance. And we gave out $12.6 million in 2020. And that decision was one where I went to my board and I said, you know, we could easily get in a lot of trouble. We could be shut down. And, and if we are, we've done the right thing. And I think the successes were having the people come in and call us and send flowers and feeling like they were dignified for the first time and seen. And to receive cash and not be forced, like this has to be used for something, told what to do with it. For us, that was just massive. I mean, it was so many people who really felt like this was their first time being honored with cash. And that's, I mean, it sounds crazy to say for $1,000, the impact that that had and us going there and driving there with food. And we started a mobile pantry with the, with the partnership with Social Venture Partners and started a Rootific software, which was really like the DoorDash software so we could start delivering to people who could not come to the center. And just the responses that we had for us doing that, and it was painful to scale to 13.6 million in year three was really painful as an organization, but I know it was the right thing. You bring up a great point. Um, it just dawned on me, I've lived here for 24 years and every time I was unemployed, I, I never was eligible to collect unemployment and that's, that's something amazing that you did and I just want to commend you for that. Thank you. It's amazing. And that group went on to actually changing the laws Recently, wow. there was a law that passed that would provide unemployment insurance to undocumented wow. immigrants who paid in. So it was a huge success, I think. Yeah. So I think at this time, I, I would like to have more of a, of a closing question um, that I think we can just open this up to whoever wants to answer this. That way we're not going to going in order here but um yeah that's 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 fine yeah that that would be good so um so at this point i think we'll we'll, we'll definitely open it up to the audience for uh question and answers but thank you for all of your answers all right um we All right, well, um, we don't have any uh, questions from our Facebook audience right now, but I am going to open it up to uh, members from the audience. So is there anybody that has any questions? And I'll come, I'll come to you over there, okay? One second. This question is for Stephanie. I wonder if you could talk about, as a journalist, the way that you worked to build trust with the immigrant communities that you worked with for this podcast. Sure, um, so I think, so I spent a lot of time with Sawa. I mean, I think we, we were talking about this earlier. I don't know, I think I probably have 10, 12 hours of, of tape and we kind of just had a, an initial meeting where we talked for an hour and I just heard a little bit more about her. And um, I think over time, I mean, I felt like 
at some point you were like, okay, she's okay. <laughs> like I just kind of felt like thing, you know, like something yeah. kind of shifted. Um, but that took a little bit of time, and. Um, I think, you know, I, I really feel like I would start to tell people what I was working on and they would, li they would lead me somewhere else. So, um, for example, going back to um, Danielle Combo, who I met when I went to the International Women's Day event at the state capitol, and she also works with Village Exchange Center. So when I had gone to Village Exchange Center for their Natural Helpers cohort graduation, she was there and I was talking to her and I was telling her a little bit about um, a little bit more about my vision and come to find out her husband is from the Democratic Republic of Congo. So I actually um, and at that point that was really early on. I mean, I, I'm trying to remember even when I came to that graduation. Was that March maybe? Um, and so that was very early on in the reporting process. And I met with them maybe two weeks later. I met with her and her husband at um, the library in Douglas County. And um, they started talking and it was really interesting because from that conversation was when it kind of sparked, oh, there's a disconnect between um, black immigrants and African-Americans. And I, you know, at that time I was still kind of figuring out sort of, I was still in the reporting process and not really sure where I wanted to go, but I knew I wanted to hit on that point. Um, so I think, so, okay, so that was one connection and then, um, in the fifth episode, I talk about the uh, Immigrant Legal Defense Fund, which is a bill that uh, Representative Nkweda Ricks um, co-sponsored, and she is also Liberian, and actually her and Salwa are, um, are cousins by marriage, they, they are related. And so I, I talked to the Colorado Immigrant Rights Coalition just to get some background information on on the bill and the work that they had done to help support this this legislation and she was like oh you got to talk to this guy and um matthew mangesha is who she told me to talk to and he is the son of he was born here but he's the son of um east african immigrants his mom is from ethiopia his dad his dad no his mom is from eritrea and his dad is from ethiopia um and so you know in talking to him and he was like, okay, you gotta go and talk to this organization. And he got me to Street Fraternity, which does a lot of work for, um, for, uh, for, young, for young adult men. And they are like literally probably, I don't know, six blocks down from here, seven blocks down from here. Um, and so I, I think that this community hasn't been reported on a lot. And I think that people were really interested that I was interested and wanted to to guide me and lead me and and I mean honestly I could have done another couple of episodes um, on this because I just I don't know I think it was just really fascinating and I, I mean I don't know maybe it's a question for the other you know for the other panelists about you know if I did build trust and how I built trust but um, but I, I think you kind of know as a journalist that you're on the right track when people tell you, you need to go talk to this person, or you should do this, or when people start to help you, or when connections start to get made, and you kind of um, are sort of seeing the same people. I mean, you know, uh, Danielle Combo is the one that said you gotta talk to Dr. Ann Kiki. And so she immediately, you know, I, I texted her, I think I called her, and she, you know, I think we met a week later. So. 
follow up. Yeah. <laughs> um, for the other panelists, were any of you hesitant to put your stories out there? And uh, could you talk about, you know, the conversations maybe you had with Stephanie about doing that if you if you were nervous? For me, um, just to answer that specific question about whether immigrants felt nervous or hesitant, we had one, a couple of, ex of experiences where we visited a couple of places. One of them were a few African markets and some stores, and we got a few no's. Some people didn't want to participate or didn't want to be interviewed. I remember my citizenship interview. We, uh, we had oh, one yeah, who didn't want to be interviewed as well. So a, a, a yeah. few people were hesitant to be interviewed or didn't want to be on the podcast. So Which is totally fine. Which was yeah. totally fine, yes. Um, and they had reasons, very <laughs> explanatory. Um, and then as far as answering your question, for me personally, I, I told her in the beginning when I first met her that I had this vision that one day I wanted to always tell my story just because I felt that my sister's story needed to be told at some point um, because so much injustice was done during the war. 250,000 people lost their lives in, in Liberia and the Rwandan story has been told. So many other countries' story has been told. Um, of the genocide that happened all over the world but the Liberian story has never been told. So I have this vision and this passion that one day, um, somehow, some way, this story is gonna be told. And I feel that Stephanie w has been the conduit um, for, for it to happen. And I'm glad that I'm here today. So thank you. I can also answer just as a nonprofit executive director, there's two concerns always with media and any type of journalism. It's one, if it's negative, it affects donations and then you can't run your programs. So that's number one. And then number two, we just happen to be working with the most historically marginalized population in the state of Colorado. And, you know, PPI, you know, the, the people's protected information is really critical in everything we do in all of our programs and who has access to it and over the last five years things the landscape has changed significantly but whenever someone comes in and wants to video or talk to people we always want to know what is it can we hear it before it goes out like and those are things that journalists don't want to do you know so it's I'm also a lawyer for 20 years so in my mind I'm very sensitive around that and it was clear that Stephanie came in with really good intentions and really mm -hmm. wanted to highlight the wonderful work that was going on in Aurora and, and with our community members. So it was a pretty quick, I mean, yeah. we kind of let her in and talked about what she could and she was cognizant of that. And I think that's one thing with journalists when you're coming into a space that's a community center where people, even taking pictures, you know, feels awkward when you're in line to get food. I mean, that's not dignifying, you know, like, so we always think about how to do that, and I think she did a very good job. Um, I would say I wasn't nervous. Um, I think it was very, it was one-on-one, -on -one and it just felt like we were at a coffee shop talking or something. Um, so it wasn't very nerve-wracking at all, but um, I think I have a very interesting perspective um, 
being a first generation immigrant um, and also being around people from all over the world. Um, so whenever I am sharing something, it's, it, I don't think I ever share my story very deeply, but I end up talking about all the people I've been exposed to um, a bit more. So I wouldn't say I was very nervous and Stephanie made a very comfortable environment. Yeah. And I, I will say that, um, so I interviewed her father first, uh, Papa Dia, who, um, who she mentioned, who founded the African Leadership Group. And he asked me, you know, are you talking to kids? Are you, you know, talking to teens? Are you, are you giving that perspective? Um, and I think, I'm trying to remember, because I interviewed Vestine, who, um, who, who works at, who I met through Village Exchange Center. And she's in, um, she's in college, I think she's a junior at uh, Metropolitan State University of Denver. Um, but I was like, oh yeah, I want to talk to some more. And he was like, I'll get you a name. And then he, and then he connected me with Miriam. And, um, and so I, I think just going back to what she said about her parents and, and you know, what they instilled in her and just to see her leadership after talking to her dad. And you know, one of the things that I touch upon in episode four is um, one thing that's so interesting is this idea of racism when you come to the US and um, you know, and, and, what, and what racism means and not having experienced it um, and not having sort of, not growing up around the legacy of slavery like I think African-Americans do here. Um, so her dad had told me the story that I mentioned in the podcast where he was on a Zoom call and this was during COVID and the Zoom got hacked. And I don't know if it was a song or somebody was just saying the N word, but he had just mentioned that um, that like that was the first time that he could really understand. And then I was talking to Miriam and she brought that up and I was like, oh yeah, your dad was just talking about it. And um, so I just, I, I mean, I thought it was really great that he was just like, you know, talk to my daughter, she's got so much to say and, and you know, and she's following in my footsteps. I mean, she, you know, part of the African leadership group is to, is to bridge that gap between black immigrants and African-Americans and she's doing that with her Afro Student Alliance group. Um, and then she's also a Tupac fan and poetic <laughs> justice. And I don't know if you guys, I don't know if the photo was up, but, um, but uh, yeah, yeah, that was, that was great. Thank you. Are there any other questions from the audience this evening? Don't be shy. All right. Oh, oh, oh we were, sorry, right up here. so great to meet all of you as working behind the scenes as the editor. Um, I've heard your voices. Your voices have been in my ears and you're also incredibly expressive and um, want to thank you for sharing your stories. But um, I guess I'm curious, do you feel at the end of the day that Aurora is as welcoming as it could be to immigrants? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Not everyone has to answer that. But Scott can. I can give kind of a perspective for high school students or students in general. Um, it can be hard to be an immigrant um, at that age, um, especially middle school, high school. We all know kids can be mean sometimes, and it's not because they want to be mean, but they don't know any better, and they don't know anything outside of what they're exposed to. Um, so a lot of the students that come, they usually just 
try to find another African student or another immigrant student and try to connect with them. And a lot of times, even the teachers aren't prepared to deal with a student who doesn't speak English very well. And sometimes the students aren't, aren't even placed in proper grades or classes just because their education might be a little different or might be a little behind or a little advanced, but they're not being placed where they need to be placed. So in terms of education, there's a bit of a ways to go in welcoming immigrant students um, and creating a space for them. Um, a lot of times you just get placed in like the ELD classes and even then it's not always as welcoming in those spaces either. Um, so for the student perspective, it can be very difficult and I think there's a bit of a ways to go to make it all the way welcoming. Um, there's been progress obviously with um, the language barrier has been um, loosened, I guess you could say, um, but there's still a bit of ways to go. I would say from my perspective, it's I'm not from this area. I've only been here for five years and I've lived all around the country and in multiple other countries. And I think that Aurora has a very large intention around integration and around welcoming newcomers. And that's what the whole Office of International Immigrant Affairs is doing and they are intentional about it. Um, that doesn't mean that it is not an extraordinarily divided city that has a mayor that's on one side of the political spectrum and you know council that's on another side and it's there's a lot of political disconnects that are going on and that's a reflection of what is actually in Aurora and what we saw with creating a space that used to be you know middle class white Lutherans and became mostly immigrants and refugees you know, trying to create a space that celebrates religious and cultural diversity and having a farm at Stanley Marketplace to bridge communities and try to have like just a, a space of encounter and exchange, that's not easy to do. And we have two Homeland Security grants that we've gotten over the last five years and still looking for more and 24 cameras and have been burglarized and and vandalized and we've had an arson at our farm and we've had, I don't know, altogether probably over 15. So I'm also on the board of the Anti-Defamation League and I'm very aware of the amount of hate-based and bias-based crimes in Aurora. So yes and no. You know, I think in terms of other cities and what's gone on in, the, in this country, I think yes, they're trying because they have to. There's 20% foreign born here and it's a very diverse place. So it's how can you handle that, but it's not there. 100%, and that's why we're here, and that's why creating a place like the Village Exchange Center is important. Thank you. Oh, and oh, we've got one in the back there. One second. Um, my question is for, well, for everyone, I guess. Um, what suggestions would you guys give for those non-immigrants to understand people who are going through their immigrant status? You mentioned, sorry if I don't remember your name, sorry, but you mentioned before that really caught my eye that even on your ID, um, it said not valid for federal government. Um, I have a lot of family members that go through that, but 
a lot of people don't understand a lot of people that are not immigrants don't understand how to understand them how to cope with those mental problems that they go through or those feelings that they go through what would you suggest for them to those non-immigrants to understand immigrants that's a big question I would say um, unless the non-immigrant encounters an immigrant's in, in their experience I would know really how to answer that question but let me see if I can I would say don't treat them any any differently you know um, even though it said not valid for federal ID I was still legal you know I still had a legal status in the country um, and there is a difference between a, an undocumented person versus a documented person I was a documented immigrant I, I, I didn't come to the country illegally I came here legally so I'm not sure um, what the question is, is asking do you mind yeah, just like for a lot of people, they struggle to understand people that are immigrants. People sometimes they they want to understand, but they don't know exactly how because they've never been in their shoes or they don't have family members that have been through that. And I think that it's important to stick the word out there for people who are or that have family members that gone through that to be able to understand them and they don't know how to understand their experiences just you know they're they're humans just like they are um, things are difficult like Stephanie said let that human experience be the the tie that binds us all you know um, I went through life experiences just like the U.S. citizen would go through life experiences. Um, I would go through to, to school every day. I would go through to work every day. I would get sick. My children would get sick. And let those experiences be the, the, the experiences that binds us together, not the fact that my ID says not valid as a federal ID. That just meant that I couldn't vote in an American election or that I was not eligible for federal benefits, you know. It didn't mean that um, I wasn't eligible to live in the United States. Um, in summary, let the lived experiences be the, the, the things that bind us together and not be judged by anything else. Great, thank you. And we do have a couple questions from Facebook. Uh, this one is for Stephanie. Uh, the um, audience member asked, the end of the podcast is a little inconclusive as to whether Aurora's plan is working or not. Is that the ending you expected? I, I mean, I think it is what it is. 
right? I mean, I think um, Amanda really summed it up that there's you know some things that are working, there's some things that still need to be done. Um, I know we know when we were putting the podcast together, we were talking about the very last uh, piece of tape, the very last time you hear from Sawa, and she mentioned it again tonight that the American dream is a facade, but it's not a facade, right? Because I mean, these are complicated topics. I mean, there's there's a lot going on nationally, on the state level, locally. I mean, I think things are getting better, right? I mean, the state passed, uh, again, 2021, 20, I think a dozen um, laws that are, you know, that support immigrants, that are pro-immigrants to help immigrants, but we still have a long way to go. I mean, you know, despite the fact that, um, that Aurora does have this immigrant integration plan and is supportive, you know, in the fifth episode of the podcast, we heard that they voted not to, um, uh, you know, they voted um, against a measure that would exclude um, federal enforcement agents to come into government buildings. They voted against uh, an immigrant legal defense fund bill. Um, the state passed one, and Representative Naquita Ricks was a co-sponsor on that. But um, yeah, I just think these are really complicated topics, and I think if I tied it all up in a bow, I don't know that that would have been believable, um, just because, I mean, it's, it's the reality. And that's why we need people like me um, taking that initiative to step out and, 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 and let our voices be heard. What I would say is there will always be a pocket that will fall through the cracks, whether there is an integration plan or not. Um, in the podcast, you, she, Stephanie talked about this group of people here on Colfax that are African immigrants who are addicted to drugs, who are addicted to crack cocaine, who are addicted to black mamba, a street drug that I ne I've never heard before. I treated several African immigrants in the hospital when I worked as a registered nurse who were high on these drugs. Um, so there will always be a group of people who will fall through the cracks unfortunately, whether there is a plan in place or not. When I was a doctoral student at the University of Colorado, we formed a group called Future Voices, and we invited Ricardo Gambetta and Min Su Song. And I heard, that's the first time I heard about the Aurora Integration Plan. I was so moved by the plan, and I wish that during my years that I suffered that there was something like that, and that, that, that I did hear about something like the Village Exchange Plan maybe my life would have changed, I, I don't know. I'm not, um, I don't regret my experiences because it, it's made me who I am today. But I, what I will say was, after I heard about the Aurora Integration Plan, I called Minsu up and I said, hey, my boys attend an all-white Catholic school in Aurora. And one day they came up to me and they said, mom, when I grow up, one of them, I wanna be white. And it shook me and I called her and I said, what can I do? This school, in his class, he's the only black kid. And I said, what can I do to help bring some diversity to the school? And she, she suggested something like the global fest that they have in the city of Aurora. And she said, she said why don't you suggest that to the uh, parent teacher association? And so I did. Um, and they, we came up with something called Heritage Day. And we actually had the first Heritage Day at the school where they, we invited people from different cultures and different backgrounds in the school. 
and we had a great celebration and people from Cuba, Colombia, from Scotland, from Ireland prepare different di dishes and uh, show their cultures and for the first time the children were able to see that it, that it didn't matter the color of your skin. They wore their, their clothing and, and the, the, uh, we had people from Korea sh uh, share their heritage. Uh, from Japan, the children learn about the Japanese yen, about currency, about um, drinks from Scotland, about foods, and it was beautiful. So on such a small scale, the Aurora Integration Plan worked at a small local school. So what I would like to say is it may seem that it's not working right now. Like Stephanie said, it's such a grand plan and right now it's, it's, it was a 10 or 20 year plan. Yeah, it was a yeah, 10 year 10 plan, year plan, plan initially, yeah. right? Yeah. We, we don't know yet. 10 years from now we may see a difference. In healthcare, we have uh, we had a, a 2020 a goal, and we've hit that goal to make uh, primary care more accessible by hiring more nurse practitioners. We've hit that goal. We now we now have a 2030 year plan. We don't know yet. So what I would say is, all we can do is hope that Aurora will will change. Um, from from the vantage point where I stand right now, I I don't see it. It takes us as citizens that live in Aurora to make these small changes, make them in your schools, make them in your communities, reach out to one another, implement these small changes in your local schools. If, you, if your kids attend an all-white school, implement Heritage Day. That's all I have to say. Thank you. <laughs> if I could add to your point, um, diversity, integration, inclusion, it doesn't work unless it's shown. Yeah. And even in schools that aren't uh, majority white, for example, at my high school, it's majority Hispanic. Mm -hmm. And still kids don't see each other's culture and don't understand each other's cultures. And there's a lot of biases and it's just unnecessary things that happen because they don't understand one another. Um, so one thing our club did last semester was host a international cultural day. Excuse me. And during lunch, we played music from all around the world. Everybody uh, dressed in their traditional clothing. We held dancing performances. And we planned that within a week, I think. <laughs> it was very last minute. Um, but we were able to do that. And it completely, that was the one event that shifted our school's culture. And we're going to do it again this year. And then one thing we're doing next week is a Taste of Culture fundraiser. We're having food from all over Africa, and we're trying to be inclusive and include Mexican culture and Asian culture because it's what's majority in our school. Um, so just you can't expect diversity and integration and inclusion if you're not doing anything exactly. about it. Um, you have to, especially within schools, you have to show the, the, you might not think there's anybody like you in the school until you put yourself out there and put it out there. And we didn't even realize how many people would enjoy a cultural day until, until we did it. And the entire school came out during lunch and everybody was dancing, everybody wore their clothing. And it's, we thought it, wouldn't, it wasn't even possible, but it happened. Yeah, start from where you are. And there's, there's one more question from the Facebook audience, and this one is for Salwa. Uh, now that you've achieved your dream of being Dr. Salwa, what advice do you have for newly immigrated people just trying to get started? Oh boy. I would say no matter what you do, you never, 
never give up. Never give up. Um, there will always be obstacles. Um, obstacles will be thrown at you left and right. Um, never give up. There will always be people <coughs> who, can I say God here? Please. God will bring people into your life who will be there to help you along the way, who will be there specifically to help you to reach your destiny. They're, 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 I have had destiny helpers. I wouldn't be here today if he hadn't brought those people into my life. And when those people come into your life, know that they're there for a reason and that they're there to guide you. Um, so I would give them two advice, never give up, and know that God will send people to your life to help you along the way. So. Any other questions from the audience? Okay, well, in, in closing, thank you for the, the discussion. Thank you for all of your, your answers to uh, earlier questions. But is there anything else uh, in closing that anyone here on the panel would like to share um, with, with all of us that, uh, that you feel is important to promote more community understanding about uh, your experiences with uh, the immigrant community? Is there anything else before we, uh, before we close you'd like to share with, with uh, the audience? I would share, I think she just left, but her question around what is the way to, to expose and to actually get people to care or understand someone else's experience, that goes across the board with everything. And mm -hmm. that's really about empathy and how do, you, how do you create empathy? How do you have an opportunity for someone to feel, like you were saying, you know, what is the encounter? What is the situation where you say, oh, okay, this is happening for you and I relate and I empathize for whatever reason. And, and what we do through that celebrating religious and cultural diversity, Village Exchange Center, these words we took months to come up with, a village exchange being a epicenter and a place where different people come in the center of a village and they have these encounters. It's like what you're creating with your school and what you've talked about. It's, it's how do you create that so that you're standing in line with someone and you're like, wow, you're going through this too? And it's someone from a completely different culture and you relate on human levels. And I think that's really how do you create opportunity even in Aurora so creating a space that celebrates not it's not tolerate it's not respect we want to celebrate one another we want to have opportunities to see what's going on with somebody else in our first year we did the day of the dead celebration we had the Mexican consulate there and the city of Aurora as sponsors and we had 500 people out down to stairs it was too many people down there don't tell the <laughs> officials but upstairs was a Congolese choir who is one of our congregations on Sundays and they were singing their practice on a Thursday night I'll never forget it and every single person who went upstairs just stopped I mean it's awe-inspiring if you listen to this I mean it's like you feel it in their heart when they sing and you know all these people from Mexico mostly 
who were there, and they just were like, you know, they couldn't move because it was so beautiful. And suddenly they have this experience, and like, wow, that's beautiful, and wanting to speak to them and learn more. But I just think that opportunity of encounter and really having those base like experiences is really how you get people to empathize. Thank you, Amanda. Well, in closing, I just want to I want to thank all the pan panelists. I want to thank Stephanie Daniel for bringing us together here uh, on a panel. Is there is there something else that, that you'd like to close with, Stephanie? Yeah, I just want to thank everyone. Um, I think, you know, as a journalist, you just kind of take a leap of faith and like Saul was saying, destiny helpers. Is that what that the term that you used? Um, I love that because I do like what a gift to meet Sala and be able to share her story and, you know, to um, meet Amanda and some of the other people at Village Exchange Center and, you know, work, you know, interview Miriam and her dad and just such rich stories. And I um, just feel really humbled to be able to share their stories. And I, um, I don't know, there's just so many moments. I mean, I'm inspired to do more reporting. I've learned so much. And I think as a journalist to be able to say, oh my gosh, you know, I've got this other idea or I learned more about this or let me look into this. I mean, I think that's all you can ask for when you create something. So I'm just, I feel very grateful. The Colorado Dream Newcomers Welcome is a production from KUNC. This episode was recorded live at the Aurora Fox Arts Center. It was produced by Kim Race and Kyle Cunningham with help from Connor Bergman. Brandon Case is the technical director. Casey Burnham is the theater and sound technician. This season's theme song was composed by Jason Patton. Special thanks to Marcus Burnett, Ashley Jeffcoat, Jennifer Orff, Odali Skytan, Sean Corcoran, Mike Arnold, and Tammy Turwell. To learn more about the Colorado Dream Newcomers Welcome, go to kunc.org slash Colorado Dream or check out the show notes for a link. <laughs>